for The Godfather Part 2, Robert De Niro spent four months learning to speak the Sicilian dialect of Italian in order to play Vito Corleone. Nearly all of the dialogue that his character speaks in the film was in Sicilian. Also to prepare for this role, Robert De Niro lived in Sicily for three months. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. Anthony here. And James here. And it's Godfather Week at Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Podcast. We just did part one last episode. And now it's time for the Godfather Part 2, which was released in 1974. It's a 9.0 on IMDb. Number four IMDb list of top movies of all time. Rotten Tomatoes rates this at 96%. Metac Metacritic has it at 90%. On a budget of $13 million, it grossed $47 million worldwide, global gross. So that's a lot less than the original. The original was about a quarter of a billion in $1972. Still a lot of money for 1974, translating to now. And this compelling sequel to The Godfather contrasts the life of the Corleone father, Vito, and son, Michael. It traces the problems of Michael Corleone in 1958 and that of a young immigrant Vito Corleone in 1917's Hell Kitchen, Hell's Kitchen. Michael survives many misfortunes and Vito is introduced to a life of crime. This film won six Oscars and it was also the first sequel to ever win Best Picture at the Oscars. It also won Best Actor in a Supporting Role by Robert De Niro, Best Director, Best Writing Screenplay uh, from Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzzo, Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, and best music from Nino, Nino Rota and Carmine Coppola. Do you know what the other best picture sequel winner is? Um, well, sequel, can that be part of the third film of a trilogy as yeah, well? Return of the King. Exactly. There you go. Great, got one. You. Great one. It was almost a trick. <laughs> yeah, I almost got you. Almost. <laughs> and obviously, because of the wild success of The Godfather making that much money back then, which, you know, adjusted for inflation, is probably about... Uh, eight hundred million dollars. No, it's it's like one point five. One point five. Damn. Yeah. Math is not my strong suit. Don't worry. I I only talked about it last episode. You probably were just. Um, I don't even out. listen to you. You tuned <laughs> me out when I talk. <laughs> but after that, and ironically, because Coppola had such a terrible time making the film, which we talked about, uh, with the success of the film, Paramount was like throwing money at him, telling him, "Please, please make a sequel." He even tried to just write the screenplay and pass the directing duties off to Martin Scorsese, his his close friend. They went to film school together um, along with uh, Luke, George Lucas and Brian De Palma because he had such a bad time directing the first one. He didn't want to do the second one. And so he tried to get Scorsese to make it. This is Scorsese before Taxi Driver and Scorsese before Mean Streets too. No, after Mean Streets. Oh, mean it? Streets was uh, De Niro's first major leading role. Okay, so, well, De Niro was, well, they were at the same time. Like, yeah. he was, I think this, Mean Streets was uh, 69. I think he did this before Mean Streets, actually. I can just double, double check, check it. Yeah, yeah, keep going. And obviously, Paramount was like, they wanted a sequel made really badly. 73, you're right. 73, okay, thank you. Yeah, so just one year before. And <clears throat> ironically, with this one, when he finally accepted, it was just smooth sailing for him because he had complete creative control. The studio let him do whatever he wanted. He was able to make a three-hour, 20-minute movie how he wanted, where he wanted, with what actors he wanted, and where in the locations he wanted. So he didn't have to fight tooth and nail that time. And he, I read, I saw this uh, great GQ interview he just did recently where when he made the first one, he believed that to be to make great art, you had to go through great adversity and uh, trials and tribulations and, and overcome hardship. 
um, to make great art. But then he realized with the uh, easygoing nature of the of the production of Godfather Part Two, that was probably just a myth because he made another great piece of art, even though the the, the production was as smooth as could be. And you could argue that this is a greater piece of art than the first one. There are plenty of people who put The Godfather Part Two over the first one. Very few people put the third one in the same class as the first two, but it's still a very good movie. But Part Two, I adore this movie. It's like the Aliens franchise. Yeah, you know, Alien <laughs> and Aliens are both great, but they're so different. Yeah. And th th that's why I like The Godfather Part Two is because it's just as good, if not better, than the first one, but it's such a different movie, which is why you like it for so many different reasons. You know, the first one is about, you know, the decline of Vito Corleone as he's passing it on to Michael, whereas this film is about the rise of Michael Corleone as dawn of the Corleone family. And then also it juxtaposes the life of Vito Corleone as a nine-year-old boy in Sicily from the murder of his family to emigration to the United States, uh, growing up at the beginning of the 20th century in New York City with not a penny to his name, not being able to speak English or anything. And then his rise from just being a, a working class man trying to get by for his wife and his child to becoming the dawn of the neighborhood. And then eventually Vito Corleone, as we know him in The Godfather. So I would respectfully disagree with your statement saying that the first one is, is about the descent of Vito Corleone and the second one is about the rise of Michael. I would say that the first Godfather is about the rise of the Corleone family to its peak. And then Godfather Part Two is the fall of the Corleone family into disarray. Because the first Godfather ends, um, yes, Vito dies and passes the mantle on, but the Corleone family is still growing. And Michael takes out all of his competition and grows the family empire to its largest ever um, size. Um, and then the second film is just a complete downfall from that peak and Michael's leading the family into ruin. And well, Tom Hagen even mentions in the second one, um, uh, someone says the Frank says, Frank says that the Corleone family was like the Roman empire. And then Tom Hagen agrees with him. He says, yeah, it was once. So I think the first one is the complete rise to the peak of the Corleone family and its power. And then the second film is the downfall. That's okay, how I would characterize make, it. Yeah. So, the, but, but like, how would you define the peak of peak financial success when they get control of casinos, or is it peak uh, control and power of the Don Vito at that point, right before his before his death? I would say that after Vito's death, they're still growing, and then they they're because they're getting the move. To so, so Nevada. Michael's so Michael's moves in the third act of Godfather Part One when he. Um, eliminates his competition and he kills the other the, the other heads of the other families and then he moves the operations into Vegas and takes control of the casinos that is when and when the door closes on case face that's when the Corleone family is at its peak well um, maybe of power, power and wealth maybe power because everything until you know part two when the main plot for Michael is he's he's trying to prevent a war with Hyman Roth by making a deal with him to get a cut of the casinos in Vegas because he doesn't want to start a war over the casinos and he figures as long as I just get a cut and make a deal with Hyman Roth then everything will be okay however obviously we all know you've seen this movie he's betrayed by Hyman Roth he's actually betrayed by many people so that's that's a, that's a great point Anthony thanks man. um not but, to not to disrespect you no no it's it's yeah. just it, it's a great point depending on where you put the peak of the Corleone family like yeah and also the, the name Corleone is pronounced multiple different ways in the Godfather trilogy. Yeah. So when they're talking about Italy, the town Corleone, 
but then the family is called the Corleones. And it's, the American pronunciation is Corleone. And this is obviously, and the Italian is Corleone. And this is from obviously when young Vito emigrates to the United States and his legal name is accidentally given with the, the surname of Corleone, his town, his hometown of Corleone, by the em- immigration officer. And so when characters, and it'll be, Tom does it, Michael does it, uh, everyone does it. When, they, when they're talking to like a normal American who's not Italian, they'll call it the Corleone family. But then to other Sicilians, they always say Corleone. Yeah. So that's just like if it, I know people are gonna be like, why do they keep saying Corleone and Corleone yeah. different different yeah. ways? It depends on the part of the movie and what the characters are talking about. And what I love about the Godfather Part Two is it's just a great dual character study. I mean, this is really two. You can even say three movies put into into one, but essentially two movies. Following Vito Origins, Vito Origins. I'm. So, that's why I'm so glad that they made the Godfather Part Two because today I'm sure Paramount would make some like mediocre origin story series for spin-off. Vito Corleone, yeah. and it'd be you know a very very decent, probably not that great. You could say the Godfather has is the only property that is probably safe from being readapted because it is the crown jewel of cinema of American cinema and the crown jewel of Paramount. I think that. Nobody would want to see like a series of The Godfather. The House of Corleone. Count- yeah. <laughs> Nobody would want to see a remake. Nobody would want to see a spin-off prequel of of a family. Like I think that they it is safe from ever being adapted. At most, we're getting the documentary series. Not not documentary, like the the fictional documentary series starring yeah. uh, Miles Teller. Yeah, it's not the movie about the production yeah. of the movie. But you're probably right that hopefully we'll never get a prequel or or unless the, unless. Or- Unless Coppola wants to do a sequel, The Godfather Four, maybe Pacino signs on. Who knows which would Pino, be Pacino and the uh, Corleone retirement. It'd be, it'd be pretty weird. <laughs> the resurrection of Corle- of Michael Corleone. <laughs> He's the Godfather of the retirement home. <laughs> I'm come back to life. <laughs> Anyways. But the Godfather Part Two, and it, because of the budget, and you know he's less handcuffed. Oh, sorry, sorry. We get a salute. Oh, We're yeah, drinking salute. wine tonight. We, we pulled out a little glass of wine in in honor of this great Italian American film. Salute. Since we're half Italian, we had to. Cheers. Anyways, back to the increased budget, which you would think it'd be way more than it's really just doubled. Yeah, <laughs> from six to thirteen million, really. Yeah. But arguably, you could say that every production element of this film is better than the first one i'm sure you could say, you could say the cinematography is better um it's he he kept the same style with gordon willis gordon willis but i think he just mastered it a little more obviously the godfather was excellent practice for shooting in dark and uh bringing out those like dark shadows high contrast low lighting shots but i think he just did an even better job with the cinematography in godfather part two and gordon willis's lighting in these movies is like he actually was very difficult to work with with actors because he the way he lit his scenes were they the scenes weren't fully lit like movies are nowadays where an actor can like move across the room and the light will stay on them even if it's um uh, minimal lighting but the way he lit it because the lights had to be isolated and specific to a region like if an actor missed their mark then they'd be in shadows and so he was like actually directing actors quite often and getting frustrated with them if they missed their mark because the lighting wouldn't look right. So he was actually 
for as great as he was, he could be difficult to work with for actors. True, but he does capture some amazing shots. Yeah. I mean, even the first one, one of my favorite shots that I think just flies under the radar is when Enzo and Michael are outside the hospital and there's just cigarette smoke blocking Michael's face from time to time. It's it's like a really simple and subtle shot, but I think it's just a great way to show the ambiguity of the character of Michael. Yeah, and the opening scene is amazing. But but I think the cinematography is great, but then the production value of this movie is just way better than what Coppola did, specifically when he's recreating Hell's Kitchen in New York in 1917. These scenes and sets are massive. Tons of extras, tons and tons of props, incredible set design. And I mean, we're multiple scenes where we're walking with Vito, long tracking shots, long following shots, going through this bustling street, this long boulevard of just people, of markets, of salespeople, of, of, of storefronts. And it's really incredible. It looks phenomenal. We have cars, we have horses, we have hundreds of extras. It looks great. Yeah, it's fascinating to get a, to look through this window of what life used to be like for immigrants in New York City after emigrating from uh, various countries. And you know, it's it's life was always difficult, and they didn't they never had much, and they often worked to death or died from illness. Like the the average age of death was really young back then, and uh, ill like uh, health was terrible. Like it was just a a rough place to live. But you know, I think that people ultimately tried to make the best of it, um, tried their best to, you know, still have a normal life, have a family, work a job, and just like Vito's in that situation where he comes from nothing. He he came as an orphan. And, you know, he's just working in a grocery store trying to support his wife and, and child. Now, before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you get awesome perks like getting to see the schedule of the podcast first. So you would have known that The Godfather Part 2 is coming out today. Personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show for our Drink Your Milkshake and Godfather tier patrons, as well as weekly bonus episodes that all patrons have access to. And our Godfather tiers get to pick their own special personalized episode just for themselves that only them and other Godfather tier patrons get access to. Those two tiers also have access to our monthly Zoom call. We also launched our podcast masterclass last year. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or just improve your current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or just go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. It's right there on the homepage. And you can follow, subscribe, wherever you're listening. Thanks so much for tuning in around the world. Now let's get back to the Godfather part Dewey. Dewey. And like you said, the budget increase allowed for this massive scope. And, you know, the first film, we were in New York and Sicily mostly. and But in this film, we're in Nevada. We're in Cuba. Like these gigantic... In Sicily a lot as well. New York, uh, New, York New York City, but also the period piece setting of New York in the 20s. So it's just... Miami. Yeah, Miami. There's The scope of this film is so much bigger. Size, scale, locations, environments... These sets are massive compared to the first one. The amount of extras are just phenomenal. In the first one, the wedding scene is the only really big crowd scene. But in this movie, there are several large crowd scenes. And that's pretty pricey for a movie to pay all those extras, also the blocking of the scenes. And those are multiple days of shooting because especially the party in Havana, they spent, I'm sure, several weeks filming that entire sequence. And that's a lot of people on set. So I was really impressed with how Coppola managed to increase the size and the look of the film, but never failed to still pack in that emotional power and gravitas filmmaking. In this film, as we said, and I'm sure you know because you've seen it, 
follows two main storylines of Vito and his rise from Italy to America, and then the rise of Michael being the dawn of the Corleone family. And I think it would probably be wise to let's go over Vito's storyline because that way we can connect it to Michael's storyline in the plot of The Godfather as we talk about Michael and what's going on with the plot of the movie because the film does a great job going back and forth at select times and juxtaposing different parallels and things that are going on in these men's lives. But I think it'll just be wise and smart to just do Vito first, talk about his story, and then as we talk about Michael, refer back to him. How's that sound to you, Anthony? I think it's a great plan. All right, so this movie opens up in Sicily and opens up with Vito as a nine-year-old Italian boy with his mother. Um, They're on a funeral march, and here is the scene where the funeral is because his father was murdered by Don Chicho, who is the Don of his town, Corleone, and also his brother, Paolo, gets assassinated during the scene as well because he was seeking revenge against Don Chicho. And it's really ironic and, and kind of funny that the origin of what created Vito Corleone in Italy, the Don, the Godfather, it was caused by the murder of his father for basically refusing to want to pay tribute to this Don, you know, being a rebel. And Vito, you could say, was probably, he's probably just like his father, whereas his father didn't want to pay Don Chicho and gets assassinated because of it. And then when he's in New York and he's older, he doesn't want to pay Fenucci, so he takes Fenucci out because he hates this kind of vermin in his eyes, you know? Yeah, it's he's he is an ironic character, Vito is. Although, even though he does become a criminal and a killer, there's this sense that Vito never loses his morality, um, and not like Michael. And that's what I think is different about Vito and Michael, which we talked about in the last episode, where even though he he kills when it's necessary, like he kills Don Fanucci. In New York, because he's Fenucci is terrorizing the neighborhood, making the lives of all the Sicilians very difficult to live, um, and he's a bully who needs to be cut out of the system. And so he does everybody a, a favor by taking out Fenucci, and then he kills Don Chicho, because I mean, I would probably do the same if someone murdered my entire family. I'd get revenge for that too. So you can't really knock him for these two murders that we see him take. And he's ironic because he ends up becoming. The, the kind of man that he kills. But in his eyes, I think for for Vito, he understands the system. You know, he's been in Hell's Kitchen. It's happened in Sicily. It's it's his, it's his background. It's his origins. You know, where he comes from is the same kind of world where there's going to be someone controlling everything. And he, I think in his eyes, he's like, I might as well, you know, take the responsibility of that and do it my own way. You know, where rather than making people pay this crazy tri- tribute... I take a fraction of that. I take a quarter. Like this is when he gets the fifty dollars from Clemenza and Tessio, which are, are great little Easter eggs, kind of from the first film, because Cle- Clemenza and Tessio were Vito's most loyal uh, lieutenants, you could say, and they they fought they followed his rise in Hell's Kitchen. So you, his first payment from them, that's probably the you could say Vito's first payment as being done. But also, it is completely contrasting from Fanucci, where Fanucci demands tribute and offers nothing in return. But Vito, he's always willing to return the favor. This is like that first deal he makes with his two buddies. He says, 
do me this favor and I'll pay you back in some way. This is how he runs his style of being a Don compared to Fanucci, where he doesn't just take, he gives back in return. He knows how to return a favor. Like, for example, when that, that salesman gives him the free oranges, uh, he's... Um, Vito says, whatever you need, if you need a favor, you need me to do something, you let me know, you come see me. So he he earns the respect of the other Italians of the entire neighborhood, whereas Fanucci demanded fear. So it's a completely different thing, fear versus respect. And Vito, you could say, he is more respected than anything. And he was created this way because of a Don just like Fanucci with Ciccio back in Sicily. And it's a really interesting um parallel or difference you could say between extortion which is what fanucci and, and terrorizing do, yeah. versus favors you know he's doing favors for people he's more interested in favors from somebody than payment obviously we see that in the first film specifically uh bonacera is a great example the funeral parlor owner but then in the second in this one we see as he's becoming don after he takes out fanucci that you know he's doing favors for the local community but i just love the sequence of him getting to New York, you know, after mm -hmm. his his mother sacrifices herself to let to give Vito a chance to run away from Don Chicho, because no matter what he's going to he's going to kill Vito because he will grow into a man and seek revenge against him. That's for his a father. movie on its own. Yeah, exactly. So Don Chicho has killed his father, his mother, and his brother Paolo, and he is rescued by a local family in Corleone who help him escape, and then he gets on a boat and heads to New York City. And these are some of my favorite shots where, you know, I think my, I think one of my first favorite shot of this movie is when he's looking through the, their window of the ship and there's a reflection of the Statue of Liberty right next to his face. Incredible shot. And then my, one of my other favorite shots of the sequence in the movie in general is after Vito as a child gets through immigration. And remember, he is given the last name Corleone because the immigration officer doesn't understand Italian, doesn't understand that Colleone is the town that he's from, but he accidentally brands him for life with the trauma, you could say, of his past in Corleone, of his death. And that's probably something that stays with him forever, the, the thought of that. Because it's his last name now, he's forever branded with Corleone, Corleone. And then, you know, he gets into quarantine because he has smallpox for 30 days. But then the shot of him just sitting down inside of his quarantine room, his feet barely touch the ground. He's just shaking them back and forth and singing a song to himself, looking out the mirror. It's a beautiful, beautiful shot to just set up the future of Vito Corleone. Yeah, I think the, the reflection shot with the Statue of Liberty in the glass is the best shot of the movie. It's one of the best shots ever. And it's just a fascinating part of American history, the the travelers going through that part of New York City, going through customs, and uh, this boy. If you look, this the um, one of the one of the workers. They mark him. They mark Vito with a circle and an X, and that was a sign for um, the the officer believing that they were um, mentally impaired, because Vito, like his mom said, he never speaks. Um, he's she she calls him um, dim witted. And I think that Vito was just a quiet boy. Uh, he's, a, he's a very reserved man. He has a few outbursts in the first film, but he is very reserved. So I think that as a boy, he was just very quiet. And so people thought that there was something wrong with him. But, you know, I think Vito, he's always been a great listener of people and soft-spoken um, and intelligent. And I think he's so intelligent because rather than talking, he'll, he'll, he'd rather listen.
And these are all traits he passes on to Michael, which we'll obviously talk about later on. And then the story picks up where he's old Dervito, and this is played by Robert De Niro, who last episode when we talked about Godfather, uh, got a part or didn't get a part. No, he got cast as Paulie. And Sonny. And Sonny, but he turned them down to be in this very, very mediocre Italian mafia comedy that didn't do well. But then Coppola remembered his great audition for The Godfather Part 1 and cast him as Vito Corleone in The Godfather Part 2. And as in this middle age, this like young, you could probably say in his 20s or something, Vito, we see he's got a family, he's got a son. This is Sonny, his first child with his wife. Sentino. With Mama Corleone. And, you know, he's got friends in the community, and this is where he also he, he discovers Fanucci. And Fanucci is the local Don who's just hassling everybody. And he's a member of the Black Hand. And now the Black Hand, and a lot of people maybe don't know much about this history of America and New York City and the Italian neighborhoods, is the Black Hand was basically a crime syndicate that were Italians from Italy and from Sicily that basically controlled, tormented, harassed, all Italians in these neighborhoods because remember in the Godfather part one episode we were talking briefly about how the Italian neighborhoods and Italians in America were not getting any help from the government they had no policing they had no law really it was kind of the wild west where they had to take care of themselves no police officers would go patrol neighborhoods there there are very few Italian police officers and detectives there's actually a, a movie going to be made I think Leo might star in it Leo DiCaprio and it's called The Black Hand and it talks about this real life Italian detective who was one of the he's like the American Italian Sherlock Holmes great detective and his biggest um, rival and biggest case and his the, the focus of his work ended up being against the Black Hand it's very briefly talked about but Finucci is a member of the Black Hand and they basically are just they were a terrorist organization that just terrorize all Italians in America. And he's not the dawn of the black hand. He's the dawn of the neighborhood. Yeah. Of this small, like, bubble of the neighborhood of, Hill, of Hell's Kitchen. Like, when his friend says he's with the black hand, the black hand is a large crime syndicate that ended up expanding across the United States. It's a fascinating story. Because even even Fanucci as a dawn, like, he lives in an apartment. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, with other normal people, you know what I mean? So he's not like Vito in part one with an empire. But he, yeah. he has people that he probably has soldiers, but he is a member of the organization. But it was extortion on a massive scale, organized scale, and unfortunately it was by Italians on Italians. Yeah, so sad. And so Finucci, he wants tribute from Vito and his new friend Clemenza because Clemenza just comes to him throwing guns through the window. Hide these. I'll be back in a week for them. And this is Clemenza from The Godfather Part 1. It's the great. Teaches in the sauce. Yeah. You <laughs> might never know when you need to cook for 20 guys. <laughs> and, and so Clemenza and Vito become friends. And then Clemenza Origins. Origins. <laughs> <laughs> the House of Corleone. <laughs> Paramount Pictures presents streaming. <laughs> House of Clemenza. <laughs> and Tessio. He links up with Clemenza after he throws guns through his window and then he returns the favor with the carpet and everything. And what's interesting is this entire sequence, it, it illustrates, you know, um, the kind of man that Vito is. Like I said, he's a very moral man. He cares for his family before anything else. He always does, even into his death. Uh, his family, family always comes first. And he does become a criminal, but he still has a sense of morality. But the way he views criminality is skewed compared to people who are non-criminals because... When he sees the guns, he's, first he grabs his, the blanket, and clearly it's something nefarious. And also he hides it from his wife, so he closes the door on his wife. So again, the Sicilians in these in these families, 
the men tend to keep their wives cut out of important matters and these criminal activities. So you can that's a metaphor for I'm sure Mama Corleone never knew hardly knew anything about the family business ever. She knew she that they were a mafia family, but I'm sure Vito never told her anything specific. And this is the first indicator that he will always keep that barrier between him, his business, and her, probably for her protection. And this is an instance where I think he that Vito has never committed a crime in his life, but I think that when he sees these guns in his bathtub, the way he reacts is like, all right, I'm gonna like he has a choice. You can you can either hide them or you can throw them out in the street. And he decides he decides to hide them, and it's an indicator for his attraction to criminality, but not in a, like a being a hard and horrible criminal, but it's an allure to criminality. But also maybe a, a loyalty to other paisanos, yeah. other Italians from the same areas he's from, and he doesn't know Clemenza yet, but he learns who Clemenza is, and they become friends. And I love the rug sequence where yeah. he's like, "I know how to return a favor," and he takes him to get the rug, and. They think he thinks it's like his friend's house, but he's lying to him. And they're stealing their very expensive rug from the best place in the neighborhood. And I think one of the best shots of the movie also is when the cop is knocking on the door, trying to look through the window, ringing the doorbell, and Clemenza is standing next to it with the cocked and loaded gun. That's an incredible shot. Great shot. And Vito, shot. you know, he's kind of just lurking in the background watching this go on. But there's something about Vito that. You could say he's like born for this. He's born for criminality in a way, but also like you keep saying, he does have a moral code to him that I think Michael has at first as Dom, but eventually Michael loses when he eventually starts to lose his soul and starts committing murders that aren't justified by by like the business or or revenge seeking things like he does in the first one. And Vito, his murders, like when he kills Fanucci, that's for the good of his neighborhood. He's doing it out of the loyalty and for the progress of his Italian people. You know, Fanucci's holding them all back, but but Don but Vito, and when he I'm sure he becomes Don, just wants everyone to profit. Yeah, exactly. And the rug is the first instance of him actually profiting from criminality. And I think that with that rug, he he saw that as like, you know, I didn't hurt anyone. I mean, these rich people, they're not going to care about a rug that they can replace because they live, like he says, in a palace. So it's just a rug. But to them, to his family, to have a soft place for his son to, to lie on the floor and to crawl on, it's such a luxury that no one else in the neighborhood has. And so that taste of that profit of the rug, that is the the big catalyst for Vito becoming a criminal and then he and, and his boys end up just stealing goods they steal clothing they end up making around six hundred dollars each per month on these on these thiever on these crimes so they end up prospering fairly well compared to everyone else in the neighborhood because on top of that he's kind of forced into the criminality in a way because he loses his job because Fanucci has a new nephew in town and he forces the grocery store owner to fire not, not fire, but he forces the grocery store owner and other people in the neighborhood to start paying double. And the grocery store owner can no longer afford that amount while keeping... Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're right. I'm, so I'm he, right. He can't, yeah. So he fires Vito yeah, because he, fires he Vito. can't afford to employ three people. Exactly, yeah. So it's kind of like how... There's no other way for Vito to, to make a living. But also, like, he's a criminal. He becomes a criminal, but he sh there are so many great little moments of 
showing his good character. Like when when he leaves the grocery store and his old boss comes running to him with a box of goods and bread and milk and cheese and vegetables and and Vito's like, I don't, I can't accept that. I won't accept that. And the and the uh, the boss is begging him, please take this food. It's like a goodbye for to me for me. Like please, you, your family needs to eat. And Vito's like, I'm not taking that. I did not earn that. And so. In the next shot, he 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 arrives home with a pair, just one pair. That's he's all he so brought. He's so proud of it, and he's proud of that pair. Like she, he shows it off to his wife, and she's like, "Oh, what a beautiful pair!" And he's like, "Yeah, that's right. That's a beautiful he's pair." He's the provider, yeah. you know. But he's his morality is he has a sense of I need to earn something, uh, to bring it home. Yeah, and I love his reaction to the grocery store owner firing him, where he completely understands, finishes his sentences for him hugs him thanks him for being like a father to him and then again turns down the free groceries yeah. and he, like you said he he's dependent on depending on himself to earn what he can and must and he earned the rug by helping clemenza so it's not like he took it for nothing he he did something to he did something to earn the rug exactly so now vito clemenza and tessio from Godfather Part One, this is the origins of Tessio the, the and Clemenza. Judas, the Judas of Godfather. This is how we learn of. I'm, we're assuming this is how they became the Don's lieutenants or capos, whatever you want to call them, um, or capos, Cap captains. Capos. Sorry, capos. capos. Yeah, it's captain or lieutenant or capos. Capos. They actually, there's a couple mob words that they were not allowed to use in the first one. That's one of them. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so we we learned that they're doing petty crimes, and like Anthony said, they're pulling six hundred dollars so a month. And this is where Fenucci gets word of this. And now he wants tribute from Vito and his boys. And he wants $200 a pop. And then he's like, you know what? $100 is fine. And then Vito, you know, I, I love the scene where he's talking to uh, Tessio and Clemenza. And he's telling them what Fenucci told them. And they're like, we should pay him $200. It's Fenucci. We have to do what he says. And Vito's like, why do we have to pay him? In Italian. Why? <laughs> why, do we why? Have to pay him? It makes total sense. Why are we paying him? He's not giving us he want, anything. He wants at least 100 each from them. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, he knocks it down to 100. But he's like, why should we keep paying Fenucci? He does nothing but bring pain and misery to our neighborhood. And then Vito, because he's so confident and brave and just like full of piss and vinegar, he's like, <laughs> give me $50 each and I'll talk to Fenucci. And I'll make him an offer that he can't refuse. And they do. And again, like I said earlier, this is kind of like the first time he ever gets paid tribute by his capos or for people by people in the neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. And <clears throat> excuse me. The thing is, like, he what's the the major problem with Fanucci, which drives Vito crazy, which he, he can't stand about Fanucci's Fanucci does this to his fellow Italians. And he's he says, like, why is he does why is he bother other Italians? Why is he harass other Italians because you know to Vito like Italians should be sticking together and taking care of each other and that's what a Don should be doing in his eyes but also another great character moment of Vito is um, when um, um, his his buddy um, Junko who takes him to the theater the girl the guy with the curly hair and, and to show him his girlfriend the unibrow yeah, <laughs> yeah <the> unibrow. <laughs> uh, but uh, Junko's girlfriend's in the theater and then that's when that's the first time we see Fanucci when he stands up to leave and he 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 initially shouts at Fanucci but then sees it's him and he's like terrified of him and then um, Junko leads Vito into the back in the back rooms and they see that Fanucci is threatening the owner of the theater and even holds a knife to the girl's head uh, threatening to kill her if he doesn't pay up and then. So Vito, he's standing, he's standing by the doorway, and then Junko, he immediately backs away when he sees the knife, and he's like, we got to get out of here. We're going to run away. But Vito waits. 
because he's not going to leave this woman in, in a perilous situation like this. He waits until the father pays Fenucci, and then Fenucci clearly shows that he's not going to kill the girl, so she's safe again. And that's when Vito decides to leave with his friend. Well, after he pulls him back even more again. Yeah, exactly. Like we have to get out of here. And it's yeah. his girlfriend, too. Yeah, so that's, that's a great character moment to see how how different Vito is from other men because he wouldn't let, he would have done something. He would have acted if that girl ended up becoming in danger. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. He's just very brave. He's rebellious, uh, wildly confident. And he passes all these traits on to Michael, which is such a fascinating character and it's of his own. And then, you know, with, with his rise of becoming the new Don, he starts to set up a legitimate business, the oil company, the Genko Oil Company with Trace's, to Italia, and I love when they go to Italy to see their barrels, their wine, their olive oil, and he starts his new business. He's the new Don, again, at a fraction of the cost. But again, <laughs> Discounted but, Don. But it's, you know, like I said, he's doing the Don on his own terms, and he's doing it for the betterment of his people. Yeah, like the, the landlord situation with the old woman that his wife brings to him in he helps with the landlord, and it's a great scene where first he speaks to the landlord politely, respectfully, like, like please, just lower the rent for her. Offers her him offer, money. Offers him money. And then even though the guy shouts at him, he, he manages to convince him to take the money. And because Vito is very – he's a very convincing person, but he, he's very kind and respectful with the dealing. You know what I mean? He's never He never loses his temper. He never shows an ounce of anger with the man. He, like, smooths him. He's a smoothie. He just tells him, ask yeah. about me in the neighborhood. And, and then the landlord's <laughs> like, fine, screw you. And, and then I, it, the funniest scene in the movie is when the landlord goes to goes to the shop and he's terrified of Vito. And he's so, like, he's, hor he's like, shaking. What a horrible misunderstanding. <laughs> of course him, she can stay. He gives him the money. And, and he's like, I'll drop the rent. Ten dollars. Five dollars. Ten dollars. Thank you. Thank you. It's so Grazie. funny. It's, it's just, you don't need to explain that Vito is respected. Like, I think so many other writers and filmmakers, they would just be like, someone, there would be dialogue or something explaining that Vito is a new, is the leader and Don of the neighborhood, but showing a character being horrified in his presence and trying to run away through a door that he can't open is a great way of showing the power that Vito has. And all he did was say, go ask around the neighborhood about me. Ask yeah. your friends about me. Use my name. And I'm sure it seems like within like an hour, he's like, oh my God, I, I'm going to die. <laughs> he's the Don. So that scene was actually improvised with him not being able to open the door. That that actor, the Italian actor, he's a he was a comedian. And that's why Coppola hired him because he wanted to improv the scene. And so Coppola didn't tell the actor, but he he had the, 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 the crew put a nail in the lock of the door to keep it from opening and he told uh the gun the gunko actor um vito's friend told him that actor that and so when the the landlord goes to, op to open the door and he can't open it no matter what he does he can't figure out how to get it to open the actor really didn't know how to open it because he didn't know it was really locked and so he improvised that entire moment of being horrified and then vito's friend opens the door Th that actor secretly pulled out the nail when he opened the door so good. Great, it works great so scene. well. Yeah. And the, you could say the final act of Vito Corleone's little prequel origin story is when he goes <laughs> to Sicily 
to get vengeance on his entire family. John Wick style. Legit. <laughs> it is brutal. So he goes back. He goes there for business as well. It's where he, Visit he meets the oil his company. partners, visits yeah. the oil manufacturing and, yeah. and uh, factories and everything. I love when uh, he gives Fredo the olive because <laughs> it's super it's, – it's, it's acidic. When kids eat acidic food, they're like <laughs> – that's this face when they chew like lemons, like – it's very also endearing because he's got Michael as a baby here. Yeah. He's constantly holding Michael in this sequence when they're in Sicily. It's very cute because you can tell, like, Michael was very special to him because as a young boy, he probably was his, very special to him as well. And he grows up to be just like Vito in a lot of ways, which is why, you know, he's grooming him, we find out in this film, which we'll get to later on. But, you know, Vito getting vengeance on Don Chicho is one of the best moments in the film. You know, he goes to the, to the same big estate. Don Chicho is still sitting in that chair, still very old, but he's a very old man now. And then, you know, Vito, they bring him a gift of the olive oil. And then he just rips his insides open with a knife. <laughs> Brutal. <laughs> like Brutal. how you described that. And he gets revenge. He's like, oh, yeah, my father, Antonio Andalini. Antonio Andalini. This is for my father. It's, I love this scene. And it's brutal. Uh, the gore is great. Uh, they really pulled it off really well. Like he just sliced through his entire friggin' it's pretty, body. It's pretty nasty. It's like, yeah. it's like he's slicing up cheese or something. But it's like <laughs> it's like you're, you're... <laughs> a Gruyere cheese. Yeah, <laughs> like not a hard cheese, like a, a sharp knife and a yeah, soft yeah, cheese. Yeah. It's a little hard. It's just like. <laughs> 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 but like you cr- want him to kill him like he shows up there you want him to kill Fanucci so badly like, there's no way he's not going to he slaughtered his entire family in front of him yeah it's terrible so he this is an instance where watching Vito kill it doesn't feel like he's really committing a terrible act he's he's committing a justified act in a lot of ways justified in the criminal sense you yeah. know it's still an evil thing to do is to kill somebody yeah I'm not still saying very evil yeah, yeah. but for, for all of Vito's assassinations and murders from what we see, they're justified in his eyes and his moral code, whereas what happens to Michael is his murders go too far. Even though a lot of his murders, his murders in the first one, that's basically out of self-defense and to protect, protect his, his family. family. Yeah. And then, you know, the opening of Godfather Part Two. Although he didn't have to kill Carlo. He didn't have to, no. Yeah. Exactly. I think Carlo, you're right. So Carlo's his first act of killing that wasn't necessary it was for him is for him and then godfather part two just a lot of the murders here like Mm -hmm. killing fredo that's going too far and losing his morality and losing his humanity in a lot of ways he didn't have to kill hyman roth he didn't have hyman roth was in terminal he was going to die within a matter of months and he didn't need to be killed but michael he wanted to kill him he has this great line where he says i i i don't want to kill everybody i just want to i don't want to wipe out everybody i just want to wipe out my enemies and so if, if if Michael views you as an enemy, he wants to kill you. Kay is the only exception, and he definitely views her as an enemy by the end of the film. But he does the equivalent where he doesn't kill Kay, but he basically ex- excommunicates her from the family, shuts yeah. the door on her one final time, and she's gone. She's out. She can probably never see her kids again. Yeah, so, so she does the next. he does the next worst thing from killing her. Probably a worse thing to do to yeah. a mother than— But that But that is such a different— the, one of the major differences between Vito and Michael. Michael doesn't have to commit most of the acts of murder in the second film. Not at all. And I think we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think it's probably time to head into our intermission, and then we'll talk about Michael. How's yeah. that sound to you? That's we're already 40-something minutes in. It's like a whole movie of Vito. I know, right? Love it. You may not know this, but Don Vito Corleone not only got into the olive oil business, but he got into the grooming business. And we recommend going to manscaped.com. <laughs> 
Our friends Manscaped are tremendous partners to this show, and we couldn't keep the lights on without them, and especially without you using their our coupon code at manscaped.com. Use code Raiders of the Lost at checkout today at manscaped.com. Get 20% off your order and free shipping today worldwide. Manscaped just launched their Ultra Premium Collection, which is the ultimate wet goods bundle, including deodorant, yes, deodorant from Manscaped for your armpits, body wash, two-in-one shampoo conditioner. Guys love two-in-one, three-in-one stuff. I mean, I know my dad has three-in-one toothpaste. I don't even know what that is, but guys just love that. It's a shampoo conditioner. It's tremendous. Hydrating body spray, which is awesome. And then the package also comes with two lip balms and anthony is addicted to lip balm. i use them a lot he's like he's at the point where like he can't live without lip balm and he loves he's always got the manscape one he's like hey what's up man it's great it's a little chapped right now it's great also manscapes lawnmower 4.0 groomer is the best groomer you'll ever use in your entire life once you have it you'll never need another one it's waterproof skin safe 7000 rpm motor it's a very fast wireless charger built in light you can use this thing in the shower it's like a rocket ship for your jewels so fellas Get on manscaped.com. Join the over 2 million men worldwide who are trusting their products for their daily grooming needs. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Some of the most iconic posters of all time are the Godfather posters, those great portraits of the of each of the Dons. You can get these posters at movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Use our special promo code Raiders 10 to get 10% off your order today. Movieposters.com has a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their arsenal. Everything from The Godfather to Spider-Man No Way Home to Casablanca to The Batman. Everything you want as a fan is on their website. They have all sorts of sizes, framing, backlighting. Whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com has you covered. Again, head on over to their website and be sure to use our special promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. All right, how about we now head on into our intermission? Sounds good. Let's begin with our movie quote competition. This one's for me, so listen up, Anthony. I'm listening. I have walked across the surface of the sun. I've witnessed events so tiny and so fast, they can hardly be said to have occurred at all. But you, Adrian, you're just a man. The world's smartest man poses no more threat to me than does its smartest termite. Sounds like a good quote. I'm trying to think. Is it Watchmen? Yeah. Nice. Thanks. Dr. Manhattan. Dr. Manhattan. Yeah. Nice job. Thanks. Look at this guy. Talking to Ozymandias. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, here's a quote from a fan. Okay, ready? No. Oh, you know the second. I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> My greatest sin was to bring a son into a world I knew was ending. Wow, that's a deep line. It's a deep line. Real deep. Greatest sin was to bring a son into the world that I knew was dying. Huh. I don't know. Tenet. Seder, oh, Seder. damn. And a quote, another quote. That's a very good quote from that movie. It's damn. a great quote. That was from John Agras. Thanks, John. And then we have another quote from Braden Bish. I was slow and I couldn't skate backwards on why they, this person didn't go pro into hockey. 
<laughs> I was slow and I couldn't skate backwards. Isn't this Happy Gilmore? No. Ah, good guess. Only 364 more days till hockey season. <laughs> <laughs> put a little hockey player on there. <laughs> I was slow and I couldn't skate backwards. Um, what's the one with Paul Newman? Oh, nope. Never mind. Uh, what's another hockey movie? It's not a hockey movie. Oh, it's not. It's the character could have been possibly been pro when they oh, were younger. Oh, damn. I don't know. There's no hockey in the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. The town. Oh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> Good quote. <laughs> you stumped him, Braden. Damn. Good one. I forgot he's like a hockey star. Yeah, he was a hockey star. But yeah. he just kept getting in fights, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay. we're going to... I need your help. We're going to hurt a lot of people, and you can't ask me any questions. Whose car are we taking? taking? <laughs> 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 All right, guess this movie release year. Analyze... This. That's the first one. Sure is. <laughs> this is a good movie because he's pick, he, De Niro's poking fun at his mafia performance. <laughs> he can do the so James can do a De Niro face. I can't do it. Watch. This well, it's like a it's a goofy De Niro face. It's good, but this is my De Niro face, right? <laughs> your De Niro face looks like you're you're having an <laughs> internal stroke, not an external stroke. <laughs> 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 you look like Frankenstein. You can't. Oh, you can't do the dread lips. I can't. I can't drop it. You can't do a sad. I can't lip. drop my lip. Oh, I guess that's. Oh, you kind of can't. Well, it's kind of. You should, probably should do that. <laughs> See, you can do it. I've, I've I've expressive facial muscles. Muscles. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What were we saying? Analyze this. Guess the okay. year. <laughs> Sorry, the people listening are the like the wine. It's the wine. He has a glass of wine. Like loses his train of thought. He's like, oh yeah, I also can't. Uh, I can't whistle. <laughs> He's right. I can't whistle. I can't roll my R's. I can't. I'm getting much better. When I speak, okay. Analyze this is 2004. 1999. Oh shit! I was way off. You were way off. All right, movie pop quiz. Oh wait, no, you do your year. Rocky Four. Rocky Four, good one, timely one. <laughs> is that, oh my god, is that that's eighties for sure, with the soundtrack? Absolutely. Uh, nineteen eighty-six, <laughs> eighty-five, eighty-five. Close. Damn, one year. Close. All right, movie pop quiz time. What movie are Al Pacino and Ben Affleck both in? Speak of the devil. Al Pacino and Ben Affleck are in a movie That's together. That's a good question. They're in a movie together. <sighs> Al Pacino and Ben Affleck are in a movie together. They sure are. <sighs> Want me to give you the year it came out to help? Hold on. It's not anything recent. No. Give me the year. 2003, this movie came out. Chasing Amy. No. Um, is oh is it um the sum of all fears? Nope. Ch uh, changing lanes. Nope. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> A daredevil. <laughs> yeah, he's bullseye. <laughs> I don't know. Gigli. Oh, he's in Gigli. Yeah, he's oh. like the the head. I've never guy. seen Gigli, so he's in it. This is the the only. I think it's the only Al Pacino movie I haven't seen. Really, he's in a lot of movies. I've seen a lot of movies. He's got like 107 credits. We we know the whole. I've seen like 200 movies. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this month we, the whole neighborhood knows how many movies you watch, Anthony. 
<laughs> Juno knows. <laughs> okay, quiz time. How many Oscars has Robert De Niro won? And if you can, can you name the movies? All right. Or movie. He, he won Oscar uh, for this film, for Godfather Part Two. so that's one. Correct. I'm going to say he was nominated for The Deer Hunter. Just uh, how many Oscars has he won? That's oh, the question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he had to have won for Raging Bull. Just give Bull. me the number first. So I feel like Godfather Part Two. I'm going to guess Raging Bull. Um, all right. Final answer is two Oscars. Correct. Did I get the movies right? What was the movies? Godfather Part Two and Raging Bull. Correct. <laughs> Good job. Thanks, man. Yeah, I feel like he could have won. He should have won for Deer Hunter. Or could have. He could have won many times. Could have won for Goodfellas, but I know he didn't. Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver. Yeah. All right. Um, who's our hater of the week? We got any haters or unsubscribes? We got some haters. What do we got? We got some haters. Haters in the house. Okay, ready? <clears throat> They're all unsubscribers. So in uh, our letterbox review of the Batman, Mar- Moran Bedlisi wrote, not a five-star review for Colin Farrell's De Niro impression? Unsubscribe. <laughs> would you give it a 4.5? Yeah. I think that's I gave it a 9 yeah, four out of 10. Half, four so and yeah, half. that's exactly what I would give it. Yeah. And then fourth room entertainment. Loved it. Fourth Room Entertainment, this is a five-star podcast. I listen to every episode, laugh along with them like long-lost friends. Also, a Patreon supporter, I might be. But if you guys don't get a sound guy to edit out those goddamn mouth noises, unsubscribe. Sorry, pal. It's like... It's a lot of editing. It's a lot of editing. We have to go through every episode. It's mostly me. It's mostly Anthony. He's like... Every time. We've talked. It's both of us, but you know, it's mostly Anthony. (laughs) (laughs) All right, next one. Beastkid15, listening to you guys on my drive to work really makes the time fly. Keep up the great work or I'll have to unsubscribe. <laughs> That's all. All right. Uh, we have a couple great five-star reviews. The first one is from Sammy Chops. Amazing. So fun. And you guys are so cool. That is the entire review. Thank you so much for leaving Appreciate that five-star it. review. And then we have Hanson JP 21 review. That's the title of the review. <laughs> Been listening to these guys for a few months. They are super down to earth, but nerd out about movies like myself. The content, film theories, and entertainment these guys provide is way more than my professor in college. We should get PhDs. Yeah, for real. Not like that's difficult to do, <laughs> but nonetheless, can't get enough of this podcast. Sorry, I'm not a Patreon member, but I hope this review works. Keep up the great work, fellas. Thank you so much. Yeah, you don't have to be a patron, but I mean, the review yeah. is very, that's really great for yeah. us. It helps us get seen, helps us get our, our chart up, get up in the charts. It helps so with this. Yeah, five-star reviews there. are super beneficial, so no big deal about not being a patron. That is more than enough for us. Thanks so much. Uh, today, on the in Film History, today is Thursday, March 10th. In 1902, a United States Court of Appeals rules that Thomas Edison did not invent the movie camera. In 1996, Twista was released. In 2013, Mud was released. In 2019, Detective Pikachu was released. Best video game movie ever, FYI. And happy birthday to Paul Haggis, the iconic Chuck Norris, Sharon Stone, John Hamm, and Olivia Wilde. It's a lot of birthdays. My streaming recommendation is a film on Amazon Prime. It is called The Village by M. Night Shyamalan. The bad color. My streaming recommendation is any of the three movies in the Man with No Name trilogy. They just added them all on Amazon Prime. So oh, no if you, way! If you never really gotten into westerns, I recommend checking those out. Those are the Clint Eastwood ones. Maybe we should do an episode on them. People will ask about it. I mean, the greatest western of all time, the last one. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's get back into our episode 
on the Godfather Part Two, and it's I feel like we wrapped up on Vito pretty much and his uh, prequel origins. Yeah, I, was, I would. He has a, a. I would say an hour of screen time in the movie Something compared like to Michael having to about two hours. Is there anything else you want to add on Vito before we move on to Michael? I think that we covered everything. Yeah, I, I said everything I wanted to say. All right, now let's dive into Michael Corleone and the present day timeline of The Godfather Part Two, which is crazy because we're an hour in and we're just getting onto this, and so. Michael's terrific in The Godfather Part 1, and obviously that analysis, we talked about how that performance was the key to that movie working, even though Marlon Brando was like the most iconic role of being the Godfather in The Dawn and Vito. But I think Michael in The Godfather Part 2 might be one of the most underrated performances of all time. I mean, the, the acting that Pacino does in this movie, it's almost like 80% nonverbal acting. It's all with his eyes. The eyes of Michael Corleone are all over this film. They're doing so much. He's just doing like even more than like Tom Hardy is Bane acting with only eyes. He's <laughs> acting so much with his eyes because Michael's constantly analyzing everything. We get an er we get a couple early lines of, of his to explain his way of thinking. You know, he he says that he learned from his father to try to think as the people around you think and to, you know, uh keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, but Michael this entire film Al Pacino Watch his eyes. You can't take your eyes off of his eyes. He's analyzing every character, every situation, every scenario. He's either using his eyes to investigate, to try to figure out who the rat is, who's betraying him, try to figure out what, ev what everyone's thinking. He's also using his eyes to give orders. He's, he's very clever, and during his trial, he's never linked with any evidence to any crimes because he non-verbally either with a chain of command gives orders or even just gives orders with just his eyes. He also instills fear with just his eyes. He, it's just an incredible, subtle, nuanced performance that I think just goes under the radar because of lack of dialogue for how much screen time he has. And this is, I would say, Michael Corleone's biggest flaw is the way his mind works and the way he operates because he views everybody, everybody as a chess piece, as a pawn. Everyone in his life, whether it be his son Anthony, whether it be Kay, Fredo, his enemies, his the people who work for him, everybody is a piece to be played and a string to be pulled. And that is the biggest flaw of Michael. Combine that with his immense amount of ambition and you get a self-destructive character who goes on the... the one of the worst descents ever in cinema of falling and destroying his own family. This is a man who ends up uh, killing his sibling, uh, uh, exiling his own wife from his children, uh, destroying his, his empire that his father built. And it's all because of his inability, I think, to really truly connect with people ever in any situation. I think Michael, one of Michael, has always had an inability to connect and always had an in, uh, uh, like an isolation from people. That's what made him such a great wartime Don. But it's wartime it's not wartime right now, and he's. I think that's what leads him to ruin. He's a perfect wartime Don, but for a peace peacetime Don, I think he's a failure because he's always thinking attack and defense, always thinking about war with that mindset, and. He's pulling all these strings and manipulating everybody in his life, uh, whether it be personal or professional. And this is what leads him to ruin and to, to, to destroy everything around him. When you watch Godfather Part 2, do you notice anything 
aesthetically about Michael Corleone in this movie compared to the first one, despite the, besides the age difference, because he's four he years old. He looks very old. He looks a lot older, especially by the second half of the film, especially by the end of the film. He looks like he's aged 20 years. Also, but specifically his skin tone. He's very pale. pale. He's pale, pale in this movie. His eyes are sunken. First one, his eyes, know, he's, yeah. got, he's got the Italian olive oil skin. He's Sicilian in that film. He's, he's got the tan and everything. And in the second film, he's very pale. He's ghostly in a lot of ways. And it seems like the, throughout the course of the film, I can't confirm or confirm this, but it seems like when I watch it, he gets paler and paler throughout the story. I think you're 100% right. And for and one of the most shocking shots of this paleness is when he closes the door on Kay, finally exiling her from the family and from the business and from her children. He is visibly white. His lips are pale. His, his, he's got white, pale, ghostly skin. And I think it's because I, I could be wrong if, if Coppola didn't mean to do this, but I think he did because Coppola... You know, people talk about Kubrick being a very detailed filmmaker. Coppola is a very detailed and intricate filmmaker as well. Everything happening on camera is happening for a reason. And I think that he's showing the loss of soul of Michael Corleone, the loss of his humanity, visually with the aesthetic of the pale skin and the old look. And also, so the final shot of the movie, his hair, its it reminds me of um, when, uh, when Obama... Was, was it's any president? Yes, but like Obama, especially because he had he had very he he had just dark hair when he was um, sworn in and elected president, and then when he and then within like within two years he had a lot of gray and white, and that was that became like a running joke for like talk show hosts, like how like the difference between like his first term and then his second term, like having every president, the amount though. of gray and especially two term yeah, president. I mean the stress of the the job, the the kinds of decisions you have to make on a daily basis. I mean the the lack of sleep you probably get. And I think that Coppola put that into this film because the final shot, I'm I, I'm not sure what what this shot is set exactly. I'm not sure it's specific enough to to let us know it's right after Fredo's death, but the final shot of Michael, the close up on his face, um, he looks 20 years older. His his he's, they clearly clearly added makeup around his eyes of wrinkles, um, prosthetics, and then he has a lot of gray strands in his hair. I'm guessing it's not right after that, but I'm 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 pretty confident it's not too far after he um exiles Kay and kills his brother. But he looks as though he's already in his sixties, even though he's probably at that time in his forties. And so what he's done and the the amount the heavy weight on his conscience uh, because of the heinous acts he's committed has aged him. For yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, he even talks about how tired he is. He's always touching his eyes, rubbing his eyes. He probably doesn't sleep. He probably hasn't slept in like 10 years because the film takes place longer period of time versus the dates of the release. It's like several years yeah. versus two years, three years. And Michael, it seems like as the new Dawn and the new head of the Corleone family, I mean, when you watch the first and second back to back, totally different people, it seems like he's kind of taken on the entire responsibility of the family's evil deeds and past onto his shoulders he's kind of consuming it all for so that no one else has to absorb it in a way like maybe he arrogantly thinks he's powerful enough and intelligent enough to handle everything on his own and it seems like he's he's delegating less and controlling everything more well it it goes back to me talking about isolation he's isolating himself from even 
the most important people in his life, like like Tom, who's always been such an important advisor. He's been isolating himself from Tom but and taking that, it on himself. But that's actually that's a strategy, very strategic yeah. place. So let's explain. But that. even after that, he still is. Let's explain that in case people are confused why he's cutting Tom out. So we, obviously, at the end of the first film, he cuts Tom out as consigliere and just becomes a lawyer for the film, and you know, probably a personal advisor on specific matters. Then you know, the opening of Godfather Part Two. He excuses Tom from a meeting because he wants Tom to not be a part of specific meetings. You know, Tom is disappointed by this obviously visibly body language. He doesn't like what's happening. But later on, the he doesn't film, know anything about the Hyman Roth deal. Exactly. He doesn't know anything about the deals. Later on, when after the assassination attempt on Michael in their home, he gives Tom Don status and power. Gives him. He makes him the Don temporary, temporarily. And he does this because he tells him that. You're the only person I can trust. And I know you're upset that I've left you out of business matters, but I've done that on, pur on purpose to ensure that I have somebody to trust because I'm being betrayed by everyone in my life right now, whether it be something like people in my family, people, my business partners. And by leaving you out of business matters, I'm ensuring that no one will try to flip you against me in my business dealings by offering you a larger part of a deal or more power in a, in a situation. So because no, everyone knows you're not part of these deals, no one's coming to you with offers, and I can ensure that you'll stay loyal to me, and you're the only person I can trust. That's yeah. why he cuts Tom out. Yeah, Tom has nothing to gain from Michael's assassination, so it can't be him who who carried out the assassination attempt. Very clever. We don't find yeah. out until Godfather Part 2 why that's happening at the end of Godfather Part 1. But I'm glad you brought up the body language because Robert Duvall, he's such a great actor and just the way he walks into that other room. And Coppola, I love it. He just holds the camera on Tom through the glass through the glass walls while Al, well, <laughs> Michael is, is speaking to um, uh, the other guy representing Roth. and But he just keeps it on on Tom for like 30 seconds because you we're watching he's like a, a, a child who was just put in the corner you know what I mean it's a, it's a great moment of the scene of the of the entire film and where I think Coppola is really smart about structuring the film is he he copied the structure of the first film which is in the opening of the first film you open with a wedding to introduce all these characters mm -hmm. and also set up the establishment of the Don and his meetings he did the same thing in this film it's the same structure this time it's the first communion celebration of his son Anthony and another gigantic party and also a lot of new characters who we need to be introduced to very quickly to understand the entire story that's about to unfold. So we need to meet them really quick. We need to know who they are and what their relationship is to Michael and the family. And he does that perfectly. Also, the same kinds of thing. The same. It's not the same kinds of meetings as Vito's meetings with the the people in the first film, but Michael is having meetings during the communion party. So it's very similar structure to introduce us to an ensemble cast, a complex story, and get us up to speed within a matter of twenty minutes. How about we go over? <clears throat> excuse me. A bunch of these new characters, starting with Senator Geary, who's the first main new character that we meet, and he seems like a nice guy. He gives that speech at the he's a politician, but he's a politician. Everybody, <laughs> he's a senator. And then behind closed doors, we get to see the true Senator Geary. And not only does he show his true colors by showing prejudice against Italians, threatening Michael, uh, telling Michael that he's going to pay him two hundred fifty thousand dollars, blackmailing him, blackmailing yeah. him. Plus monthly expenses in five or five percent of both his casinos, 
Not only is Senator Gary showing Michael his true identity, but Michael then shows Gary his true identity back at him. He's like, oh, you thought that you were going to sneak up on me? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to cover my costs for my gambling license, and you're just going to leave this room, basically. Here's my offer. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and I'd really, really like it if you would take on the fee, the fee of the gambling. He's like, the gambling license is less than $20,000. Why would I pay any more than that? So Michael, he's, he's in so much control of himself. It's really, it's it's a, an amazing opening scene for him because you can see, it's such a contrast from the opening scene of him in the first film because he's taken on the role of Don with, it looks like, a lot of pleasure. And he is really good at it. And he's speaking to the most powerful person in the state, and yet he's speak to him, speaking to him with, like, like you're nobody. He's, it, in a lot of ways, it's like he's become... Vito, like how he, how he handles the Hollywood producer, like he's a nothing. He's just like a Hollywood producer, even though he's super powerful in, in California. I, I think that Michael is at the peak of his powers and his confidence. Like you say, he's very confident. However, he's met with many obstacles in this film. And this is the first obstacle that Michael has met with, with this senator. Fortunately for Michael... The situation with Senator Geary clears itself up when he commits murder while drugged out on a sex worker, a prostitute at Fredo's establishment, which gives the opportunity for the Corleones when Don is in when Tom is Don at the time to get control of Senator Geary and get him in their pocket. And from then on, Senator Geary is like a mascot for the Corleones, especially a, at the trial. It's a great contrast at the Senate hearing investiga investigation hearing because it's a contrast of Geary's monologue to Michael in the opening of the film, uh, being racist towards Italians, saying he, he wants to run people like him out of town and like uh, blackmailing him. And then he goes on this two-minute uh, monologue at the Senate hearing talking about how amazing, how incredible Italian-Americans are, how vital they are to America, and how the Corleones like, are a respectable family. It's, it's an amazing contrast and, and really shows the, the, the true nature of most politicians. And I think that Coppola portrayed it beautifully. And another main character in this film is Frank Pantangeli. Now, Frank is an old associate of Vito Corleone, and he stepped up to temporary consigliere because Clemenza was consigliere for Michael. This is what happens in the book. But unfortunately, Clemenza has passed away by the time this film begins. And they think it's a heart attack, but then someone's like, it wasn't a heart attack. So we can assume that he was taken out by somebody. But Frank, uh, Frank Pentagelli, he's loyal to the Corleones. He himself is a Corleone by blood. They're from the same town in Corleone in Italy and so they have a great connection and he's always been loyal to Michael however there's an issue where there are these brothers the Rosado brothers back in Frank's neighborhood which are muscling him out of situations and Mike won't give him permission to retaliate basically and Frank doesn't understand why and that's why he's come to talk to Michael at the communion to ask ask for permission to retaliate and muscle back against the Rosado brothers or otherwise they'll basically eat his lunch and take over his territory but Michael doesn't tell him immediately but eventually we find out that Michael won't let Frank do it because the Rosado brothers are backed by Hyman Roth 
And Michael needs to keep Hyman Roth happy and think that he has control and power over Michael. And by letting the Rosado brothers run amok in Frank's territory, this keeps him close to his enemy, Hyman Roth. And this was actually supposed to be Clemenza's storyline. Frank, there's a reason why Frank isn't in the first film because it wasn't intended to be his storyline in this film. Clemenza, the actor who played Clemenza, he demanded a lot more money. And he refused to gain the weight to suit the uh, the same appearance he had in the first film. And so because of those demands, uh, Coppola decided not to include him in the film. So they rewrote the role. And then they came up with with kind of an unexplained reason why he's not even in this film. So it was supposed to be Clemenza's role. Man, I would have ate all the meatballs and yeah. bread he wanted to be in yeah. Godfather Part 2. Yeah, man. But hey, to each their own. But Frank's a great character because... He's very morally ambiguous into term in terms of trying to find out who betrayed Michael. Because then we have another main character, Hyman Roth. Now, Hyman Roth, played by Lee Strasberg, who did a great job. He's a legendary actor in his own. He helped train actors like Paul Newman, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, Jane Fonda, when he's the director of the Actors Studio in New York. Yeah, it's, so there's the two main kind, major forms of acting that's taught. It's the Lee Strasberg acting and then the um, Stella Adler acting and those two are like the two big heavyweights of teaching acting and Lee is also considered the father of method acting in a way you know that that originated in the in New York and America and now Hyman Roth this character is a Jewish mob associate who's basically untouchable in the mob world because he's so great at making money for mobsters. He's worked with Vito for years. So there's even a quick scene of him and Vito's storyline in The Godfather Part Two as a young Hyman Roth where Vito even helps name Hyman Roth, give him like a new American kind of sounding name. Hyman Roth is like, wasn't his original name. And so he's in Vito's timeline for a moment. He's part of like one of the friends that help him out at the olive oil business. And now Hyman Roth, like we said earlier, is making a deal with Michael. And, you know, they talk about how it's the biggest deal in mob history. It's going to be one for the history books. No one's ever done anything like this before. And basically what's happening is because Michael was moving into Las Vegas, where Hyman had controlling interests because he was also a close friend and partner of Mo Green, Michael is potentially starting a war by taking over these casinos where Hyman Roth once is has also ownership and in, in, uh, investments in Las Vegas. So in order to prevent a war, they're going to go into the Las Vegas casinos as partners where Michael won't have like his name as an owner of any of the casinos. He'll just get a cut of the casinos from Hyman Roth. And then Hyman Roth will get a like a bigger name on the deal and everything. He'll have ownership over the casinos. So this is to prevent a war where they're going to work together instead. And they're also working on a deal with the with the Havana government with in the Cuba in Cuba, which is why they travel to Cuba. And so the plan is to actually form a relationship, a business relationship with an actual government, because the American government would never uh, make a, a business uh, association with the mob, but. Cuba accept, welcomes them with open arms, the, the new Cuban government. However, this ends up getting very testy because as Michael sees how dangerous the, the country is, how rebellious the, the rebels are, and how uh, it seems like it's a very difficult situation for the Cuban government, 
it makes him very uneasy about doing this deal in Cuba. Now, there are a couple of failed assassination attempts in this film, just like yeah, a in bunch. the first one. Yeah. And so the first failed assassination attempt is on Michael's life while he's in his bedroom. Where my children a, play? And fortunately, because of his eyes, he's got those great eyes. He sees the gunmen before they start shooting the bullets at him. He's able to duck below the windows into safety and hide from the bullet sprays. Unfortunately... They get killed, and it looks like they're from the killers me. get killed. They're from yeah, the killers <laughs> get killed by whoever was with them to leave them there, and they deduce that they're from New York. So first assumption is that it was Frank that led this hit on because Mike did not give him permission to go against the Rosado brothers. So Michael's first assumption, maybe, and the audience's first assumption is that Frank is behind this hit. But in actuality, it was Hyman, Hyman Roth. Roth because there was also another assassination attempt that was failed on Frank's life. And so in this assassination attempt, it's in a bar with Frank. And as he's about to be strangled, the assassin says, Michael Corleone says hi. And so this is a failed assassination attempt. We think it's successful at first, but we don't find out till later on that it was a failure because Frank survived, went into witness protection program, and is working with the FBI, is going to be witnessed against Michael Corleone along with Cheech. And fortunately for Michael, he's very intelligent, so Michael's able to spend this entire film, he's, Michael spends this entire movie trying to figure out who betrayed him and who the rats are, basically. And throughout the entire course of the film, he's able to figure out that not only was it Hyman Roth that betrayed Michael and attempted to assassinate him, he eventually finds out that Fredo was the rat inside of his family. And unfortunately for Frank, Frank thought Michael put the hit on him. Hyman Roth just made it seem like Michael did. So yeah, it might be confusing if you've only seen this movie maybe once, but even though the assassin says Michael Corleone it's actually Hyman Roth who ordered that hit on Frank in that bar. Now, this is all, everything he's learned from Vito is how Michael survives this entire situation because keep your friends close, like Frank, keep your enemies closer, like Hyman, Hyman Roth. Roth. So the whole entire film, just like Vito and Michael do to um, Barzini in the first film, making him seem confident, Letting him muscle out of situations, they're letting he, Michael's letting Hyman Roth feel confident, letting Hyman Roth feel comfortable. Don't worry, I would never suspect you. You know, he meets with Hyman Roth, and he also meets with Frank when he's trying to figure out who the rat is. You know, he accuses when he's talking to each either one of, one them, of them. Yeah, he's talking about the other one. He's talking to Hyman Roth first. He's like, "It was Frank who did the hit on me. Don't worry, I would never suspect you. Basically, nothing will ever be more important than our business deal. Don't worry. Should I take out Frank?" And then Heimroth's like, yeah, he's small potatoes. Versus when he approaches Frank, he approaches Frank with anger and like outbursts. And he's, I think what Michael's doing is he's watching the reaction uh, to see what Frank does, also to see the reaction of, of Hyman. I think that the Hyman saying that he's small potatoes is probably a very telling thing to Michael. Just like how when Frank responds to Michael telling him that Hyman Roth put the hit on him, Frank says, we should take them all out while we got the muscle. <laughs> and I'm sure Mike's like, I like your style, bro. <laughs> Let's but kill think, them all. I think this is the point where Michael knows it's not Frank, and especially because where they're meeting, you know, it's Frank's, it's, Frank's home is Michael's childhood home. You know, this was Vito's office when he was a child. It's very important to him. And I think he knows that Frank is old school Corleone, 
loyal loyalty is more important than money, more important than family and blood and everything. What I think is really interesting about Hyman Roth is his home. It's um just like a normal house in a suburban neighborhood and and even Michael when he's entering it, he's like looking around like this is where this guy lives. Like he's worth three hundred million dollars and he's just living in in Hyman Roth is just living in this little like ranch home. I, I love that it's aspect. It's a nice of the place, film. though. Not for what he's worth. You got to think about it in terms of like where Michael lives compared to him. It's clever. Michael lives in an estate on Lake Tahoe. It's clever, right? That's yeah, so, true. He's so Hyman Roth is very intelligent. He just lives in this modest home with his wife, who doesn't obviously doesn't know anything about his dealings. He's just like watching football. It's not what you expected leading up to the anticipation of what this character would be when you're when he's discussed several times and built up. And then you see, it's just like this guy watching football on a couch in this house <laughs> in the neighborhood. It's just like, well, this is Hyman Eat, Roth. Eating tuna sandwiches. Yeah. And then Hyman Roth is an example of, uh, like I said earlier, because of the, the chaos in Cuba. And eventually, like, uh, when the, um, I don't know if it's the president or governor of Cuba. Whoever, I think it's the president uh, of he, Cuba who is supposed to be getting the, the briefcases full of money yes. from them. So the president, he steps down and then chaos erupts in, a revolution. In, in the city. And then Michael's like, I'm getting out of here. This, I'm not doing this deal. I'm, I'm bouncing. And so this is when Michael decides I got to take – I'm taking Hyman Roth out he, because he says Hyman Roth's not going to live to see the new year because he planned to have Hyman Roth killed during this party. However, why did Michael wait so long to kill Hyman Roth? If you could argue that what the scene I'm talking about where they meet in Miami – he probably figured it out there that it was Hyman Roth, or maybe not too soon after. And now that's because Michael needs to figure out who the rat is. There's a rat close to him. In the family. In his family, yeah. a close, maybe a capo, a lieutenant, somebody very close to Michael is the rat, was part of this deal, helped to plan the assassination or, or get information on to get him assassinated. So that's why he waits so long to take out Hyman Roth, because he had to find out who the rat was. And like I said before, when you watch The Godfather Part Two, just watch Pacino's eyes. So when Michael is talking to anybody and analyzing situations, he's looking through people. Watch Pacino's eyes. He's always, like he says when he's with Frank, he says, my father taught me in this very office, in this room, to always try to think of what everyone around you is thinking, just to think like they think. He's doing that with everybody. He's doing that with his wife. He's doing that with his with Tom, like I said earlier, the flaw of him. And he's doing yeah. it with Fredo. And, you know, him and Fredo, they have like a brotherly moment in this film. It's actually very nice, but it seems like Fredo is slipping up his behavior. His body language is off, and Michael is clearly catching on to this. And he's noticing these little ticks of, of Fredo. And especially most telling is when he's being, he's, when Fredo is being introduced by Michael to Johnny Ola and Johnny Ola in is, Havana in Havana and Johnny Ola is basically Hyman Roth's right hand man and when Fredo before that he's very boisterous and loud and having a blast he's introducing everybody hey, yeah 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 but then when he shakes hands with Johnny Ola he's like oh hey, hey how are you doing but no there's an awkward moment yeah but he the, does, can't even look at him he kind of freezes yeah and it's like you said like he's so personable with everyone else but then when he sees Johnny he's like he freezes like uh, he looks oh, down. He doesn't, nice doesn't even make yeah. eye contact with him, and Michael's staring directly at that situation. But that wasn't like the moment, though. Yeah, that. But that's like that's odd. That's yeah, really odd. Strange. I'm noticing he this. Took, he took note of it. But then when Fredo gets a little tips, 
and he doesn't realize Michael's right behind him. He's telling them about this this crazy wild sex show that they're at, and he says that Johnny Ola showed him this place, told him about it, brought him here, and Michael's like, "How the, did Mike did Johnny Ola bring you here?" And he, he and he mentioned Hyman Roth off like as if he knows him. He yeah. like he's like Hyman Roth, like an old he would that old geezer would never come in a place like this, like. And he's never even met. He sell. He tells. He tells Michael he's never met him because earlier, um, when Michael's telling him about Cuba, and he's in, Fredo's like, I don't know, but do I know anybody in Cuba? Michael says, uh, Hyman Roth and someone else, and then Fredo says, I never met them. So he says he's he's told Michael he's never even met Hyman Roth, but then now he's talking about not only Johnny Ola. But Hyman Roth, as though he knows them personally. And this is the iconic scene where Michael. And also, we, the audience already knows because he yeah. got the phone call in bed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is the, the iconic scene where Michael grabs Fredo on that New Year's Eve party, grabs him by the head, stares at him with his eyes, the, the Michael Corleone stare, kisses him on the lips, and tells him, I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you. I know it was you. Fredo knows exactly what he's talking about, and then he tries to leave. But then they, he eventually comes back to Michael and. Michael does with Fredo what he does with all of his enemies at this point. He considers Fredo an enemy, lulls them into a state of false confidence in order to either get information or help from him. And in terms of help, he's trying to maybe get aid from him for the trial that he's in because Cheech and Frank are are uh, witnesses in testifying against him. And also, while his mother's alive, he tells Hal, I don't want anything to happen to him while my mother's alive. When his mother does die... Like I said, all he does is have to give orders by looking at somebody. Like he looks, he just gives Hal a look. And that's just him telling Hal, kill this motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard you say that. What? Kill this motherfucker. <laughs> but, um, and it's, it's extremely powerful for a moment because it happens during the wake of their mother. Mm -hmm. It's when, um, Connie convinces Michael to, in the moment forgive fredo show humanity yeah on the surface and so then he goes into the into the, the into the house and then he embraces fredo and he holds fredo but when he does who's he look at it's okay hal he looks at hal what are you looking is, what are you looking at hal? this is him <laughs> this is him saying because earlier in the film he told hal i don't want anything to happen to fredo while my mother's alive so michael always intended to kill Fredo. He was always playing it, but he wanted to wait for his mother's death first because he didn't want his mother to bear with, to deal with losing a chi another child. And so it's it shows the the lack of humanity um and even the the sociopathic mentality of pretending to forgive Fredo, of pretending to welcome him back into the family. Only to, like you said, lull him into this uh, feeling of comfort and acceptance again, just so that he can have his opportunity to kill his own brother. And also just to clear up what the information that Fredo gave to Hyman Roth was the location of where uh, Michael and Case slept in the estate. Because the estate's really big on Lake Tahoe. And so Fredo, being a dummy and being in, entranced by... Someone offering him something of his own um, had a moment of weakness and, you know, a slip of the mind and revealed, like, where in the estate Michael lives, where he sleeps at night. And, you know, Fredo, like he says to 
to Michael. It is. It, it was silly to think that. I mean, to believe that they wouldn't do anything to Michael with this information. That it was just um kind of on offhand and that it wouldn't result in something serious like an assassination attempt. But Fredo, he's trying to explain to Michael like his motivation is kind of valid. You know, he skipped over. Oh, like their final scene together. Yeah, he it's was great. Yeah, it's a. It's, this is one of the best scenes of the entire trilogy. Franchise. It's very powerful. Uh, Fredo and Michael, because it, it, it's tragic for Fredo because Fredo, he's always he, Fredo is is defined by his passivity, and his lack of you know motivation and his lack of pursuit of power. He's the second eldest, and yet he was skipped over after Sonny was after Sonny was killed. Uh, Michael became the new Don, and not only skipped over by his older brother and younger brother but also his non-blood brother yeah tom hagen was shown more respect so everyone's been shown more respect than fredo even someone who's not blood and then also you know fredo reveals like scenes that we've never seen where he's like clearly from the in the past he's been told to just do these mundane things for the family like pick someone up from the airport or go manage some random club in the city like that's those are the tasks he's been given by the to, by the family whereas all the other men have extremely powerful and important positions in the family he's doing stuff that like you know a soldier or a grunt would do and yet he is a corleone but also you know it's a it's a result of his character who he is as a person a passive person someone who's never had a spine really someone who's never really fought um and it, he, and also someone who indulges in pleasures, someone who indulges in alcohol and and drugs and women, and he's never. It's like you can compare him to Commodore, Commodus in in um, Gladiator. He's nothing like his father. He has none of the qualities that Vito has, and Vito loves him, and includes him in scene in moments, important moments. Like he's in the he's in the room during the Salazzo meeting in the first film, but he's not really doing anything he's not really there for a reason other than he's just Vito's son it's not like Vito's tr- teaching him like he's trying to teach Sonny how to be a good Don he's just there because he's you know one of his kids there's never ever in his entire life been any indication that he would ever have a position of power in the family and so this is a moment where Fredo was offered something of his own by Hyman Roth you know given a deal a, outside a deal, the family being accepted um, given something important to do, and so he said yes to it. And can you blame him? You know, especially what happened to him when he was with Mo Green in Vegas. And then, like we talked about last episode, how Michael took out Mo Green without even telling Fredo he was going to do that. And Fredo was never shown even the kind of respect that he wanted from his father. You know, his father knew he was weak, just like his father knew that Sonny was a hothead and would be a bad Don. He that's why he was always. Well, you could say, well, also, like, who would Vito want of, wanted to have taken over anyways? Like, because he wanted Michael to be something else. You know, he wanted Michael to be a senator or a governor. Well, I think that if Michael had been in a position of political power, he okay. would have been able to get a handle on Sonny as Don and kind of control Sonny. Because Vito, like you said, he's still at the beck and whim of the people in the real power. And Santino would have been at the... At, under the string of Michael, if yeah, he right. Been yes. a so they wouldn't have even needed to be exactly. A Don. So Michael yeah. still would have been the Don, but like the senator, the senator, like legal Don. Yeah. So Santino's okay. hot and hot-headed nature 
and emotional irrationality would have been subsided by Michael's true power over the entire state. And it's a tragic scene when Fredo gets assassinated and Michael watches from his house, from the window. He watches it and we hear the shot. It's tragic, you know. This is a murder that it's not necessary. There's an opportunity for Michael to show humanity, to show some morality. But Forgiveness. It's all gone. You know, he's exiled his wife, Kay. He's killed Fredo. And now Kay and him, their relationship just goes downhill from the start of this, from like uh, like 20 minutes into this film. They're okay at first. You know, they're expecting another child, which Michael's very happy about. But then, you know, I think the assassination attempt on Michael and Kay in their bedroom was the first sign of Kay distancing herself from Michael because... I would argue, I would disagree. Well, the first main one in this movie... The first one is when they're dancing at the party, and she says, "You told me we that the Corleone family would be completely Corleone. Corleone family would be completely legitimate within five years." It's been that was seven, seven years, years ago, ago, Michael. You can tell she's not happy with what's going on. So but that's she's still the first in love. Indication. She's still in love with him. I wouldn't say that. She, I, she, I think she hundred percent still loves him. But it's not until the assassination, because the next scene after the assassination attempt is Kay with the kids on the couch. And then Michael, with his staring and his eye contact obsessiveness to be able to read everybody in the room, Kay won't look up at him and meet his eyes. And I think this is the first point where Kay's realizing that Michael is the threat. Michael is an enemy to me and my children. I could die because of Michael. Now I have to figure out a way to get myself out of the situation because I don't want to die and I don't want my kids to die. Well, you could say that's a moment of her wanting to get out, but but still loving. I wouldn't say that's a moment of her losing her love for him. Well, I said it's the first step. First, Okay, first step. I think the, um, I think the Senate hearings are really indicative of her just wanting to get away from him and getting out of his life because uh, Coppola... She's sitting right behind Michael, and if you watch, if you watch this movie enough, then you're watching the other actors more so than you are Al Pacino. And uh, the more I watch this movie, I'll, I'll my eyes will gravitate to Diane Keaton in these scenes, even though she's just a background actor basically. But she's doing so much with her face because she's also a terrific actor, um, and you can see her reactions to like when that that senator is reading off the accused crimes of Michael Corleone. And her face is just like, you can see in her eyes. And what's probably going through her head is like, I'm married to a monster. I'm married to a man who murders people. I'm married to a man who does commits atrocities. I think those that's the most important scene for her to understand why she doesn't love Michael anymore at all. I think that Senate hearings are very telling. Yeah, and also the point in the fact that she... You know, at first, it's assumed that she had a miscarriage when she lost the baby. That's what Tom tells Michael. But then Kay confesses to Michael that she aborted their child. She aborted their baby. And this caused Michael to look at Kay as an enemy now and to exile her from his life. He's not going to kill her like he killed Fredo, but... He takes his children and their children away from her. And we can probably assume that, you know, in the kitchen, she's saying those quick hellos to her children. It's the last time she probably thinks she'll ever see the kids again. Yeah. And I, I think that scene is also one of the best scenes of the entire franchise as well. The the Michael K fight, because 
Michael is so caught up in his manipulations and his schemes and his in his business and and dealing with who he is that he has completely become blind to his family. The, so Michael is an extremely ironic character. Um, tragically ironic because for a man who says to care more about more deeply about family than anything else for someone who talks about family as much as he does someone for someone who puts family so we think first um he, he he destroys his family in the end his actions ruin his family he is not a family man like his father was he's an absentee father he barely knows what's even going on with his kids I also don't even think he really cares for his daughter. He seems to only care about Anthony, his son. And also, when he talks to Kate when they're dancing, he's like, is, does it feel like a boy? All he cares about is sons. And when he gets home from one of the trips, and it's Christmas time, and he asks, he asks Tom, he goes, he says, what, what present did you give Anthony? And Tom says it's like a, a battery-operated uh, car. Uh, he didn't ask about his daughter's gift. So he seems to always he seems to put his son over his over his daughter. We don't even know his daughter's name. It's never said, and that's said that's that's for a reason. Like you said, couple is a specific filmmaker because Michael honestly doesn't really care about his daughter. All he cares about is his son and passing on his line, his bloodline of Corleones in the family. And that's why when he asks more questions about the abortion, he asks if it was a son. Exactly. And that's what caused him to hit her. We don't even know his daughter's name. I've seen this movie 10 times. I don't even know his daughter's name. It's not said in the movie. Not Francesca. once. Francesca. Is it? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, so he does, He is completely cut off. Cut off from Kay. And like Kay says, he's so blind that he didn't realize that it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. Because he's so blind, he can't see how in disarray his family is and how unhappy and even terrified his wife is that she's willing to do go to that extent to escape him. And he saw he did not see it coming at all. Yeah, a man who thinks he's so in control of everything. He thinks he sees everything, but right under his nose, he neglected his wife and his family so much that he caused his wife to abort their baby. And now, one of my favorite lines that relates... To this entire topic from Vito Corleone in the first film is a man who doesn't spend time with his family can Isn't never be a real man. man. Can I say the damn Sorry. Line? Can I say the damn line? Sorry. Say it again. A man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Now that is the biggest difference between Vito and Michael. You know, you can compare them as being Dons in terms of how successful they made the family, how much power they brought the family. But when you compare them in terms of being heads of families, Michael is clearly like actual families, clearly yeah. inferior to my to Vito. Vito loves his family. His family comes first in every situation, whereas Michael, the family does not come first in every situation. He loses that. He doesn't. He seems to not care about his family anymore. And this is shown so well in the final scene of the film. Let's talk Where about we it. get a little prequel shot of a dinner scene of a surprise birthday party for Vito Corleone. Even this is before Sonny's died. This is before, this is right before Michael even goes to war. This is a dinner scene with him and his brothers and Connie. 
and Carlo's there as well. And this is where Michael confesses that he's joined the Marines. And you can say, you can argue that he's done this out of spite of his father and, and Tom and their wishes for him because Tom tells him that, like, what, what are you doing, Mikey? We had, we had, me and your father have had conversations about your future. You know, you're, you're going to be a senator someday. You're going to go to, we're going to go to school and you're going to get educated. And you're going to become one of the most powerful people in the, in the country legitimately. And, you know, Michael, you can say, joins the Marines because he doesn't want anyone to control his life. And ironically, he ends up becoming the Don of the family that he didn't want to be a Don of the family of. And what happens when Vito walks in the door and they all go surprise him with the birthday cake? Michael sits by himself at that table listening to everybody say, sing happy birthday to his father. Because Michael never wanted to be a part of this family, never wanted to be the Don, never wanted any of this and felt disconnected from his family. And that is the biggest difference between him and Vito. Yeah, it's it's one of the best scenes. Um, I know I've said that three times. <laughs> no, you've said that like 12 times. <laughs> Someone needs to make a shirt for Anthony. That's one of the best scenes. <laughs> it's, it's really brilliant. It's a great way to end the film. And it goes back to um, my comments earlier about Michael um, feeling like he's never belonged anywhere. And always isolating himself. And never connecting to even his own family, never truly connecting to them. I think that there's so part of him, he joined the Marines to reject his family, but also to, and to spite them in because he never, he wants to isolate himself from everyone. And he does this subconsciously too. Like he isolates himself from his wife, from his business partners, from Tom. Uh, I mean, the way he speaks to Tom, just for Tom listening to a, a job offer. You know, it's like, and Tom's like, what did I ever do to have you speak to me like this? This is like, this. why do you hurt me? Mike? Why do you hurt me, Mike? It's like, it's a terrible way to speak to a man who's been so loyal to your family for over, over 40 years, just for listening to a job offer. And this final scene perfectly illustrates Michael's isolation from everyone else, his self-inflicted isolation. He isolates himself from everything and everyone. He doesn't join his family for... The birthday celebration of their father he he decides to join the marines just despite the family uh he's never truly connected to them all he's always i think he's always felt like an outcast in his family um even though you know his parents and his siblings have always tried to love him i think that there's something that's always been in in michael and it's 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 shown in al pacino's performance in the first act of the first godfather of like like you said not wanting to be a part of this family not fitting in I think that Michael doesn't fit in anywhere with any part of the any part of the family any with any part of the world I think that he Michael is like cursed to um self-isolation he's cursed to living in his own mind in his own bubble not truly connecting to anyone ever I disagree oh. big time so I'll explain. but also I'm sorry his isolation and his, his inability to connect also makes him a great wartime Don. Oh, great. Yeah, for sure. Great wartime Don. But is he forever an isolationist and not want to get close to anyone? I will disagree. And this also ties into a question of what makes Michael become evil. So I believe that Michael, you can say after he kills in the first one, he kills Salato McCluskey because he wants to get revenge for his father and also to protect his family. He goes to Sicily and he spends time there. And you could say that, you know, Michael, he meets Apollonia. And that's the first connection he's ever had, I think. Okay, yeah, I think got, Apollonia, 
struck by a lightning bolt. You know, the woman in Sicily. <laughs> she was struck by the lightning. The woman in Sicily are more dangerous than shotguns. <laughs> he's in love. This is the first connection he's probably had his entire life. Even with Kay, he never had anything like this. So that was his one true connection. Now you could say that if, let's say, Apollonia never dies and Sonny never gets killed. Mike goes back to it, and then Mike goes back to New York after the heat falls, uh, cools down. Maybe he never becomes Don. Maybe he never becomes head of the family. Maybe he goes back to a normal life. He did what he did to protect the family, to protect his father, to protect the the future of the Corleone family. Maybe he goes back on his own ways to becoming a senator. Who knows? With Apollonia by his side, but you could. But I think that because of the. The killing of Apollonia and also the murder of Sonny, which both with chap which happens while he's also in Sicily, right before Apollonia's death and assassination, which was supposed to kill him. Then I think Mike is probably just filled with so much anger and rage and hate and the need for revenge, just like Vito needed to get revenge on his father in Sicily. Now Mike is going to co- completely corrupt his soul. Maybe his soul is gone now, and now he's just going to use. All of his incredible traits of intelligence, manipulation, tactics, strategy, confidence to just destroy all of his enemies and then fall into the role of the Don. Because, again, it's such an ironic character because he becomes the Don of a family he does not want to be a Don of. I would say you're mostly right, but I would say that if Apollonia survived and they went back to New York, which they were planning to, he still would have been in the family because when he was in the hospital with his father, says he, I'm with you. He's committing to the family. Then he abandoned Kay, and he joined the family. And I think it ultimately would have been inevitable that Sonny would have been killed eventually because he's such a hothead. He would have pissed off the wrong people, and someone would have had him killed eventually. All I right. think that was inevitable. I think that he was always destined to be the Don after the choice of joining the family. All right. Okay. So maybe that's right. But also maybe but he you're also right. I think about... he wouldn't have fallen into this descent of evil if Apollonia didn't get killed. I think, I think you're right. I think that Apollonia's death, um, because it's, it is such a short amount of time in the first film, but like we said in the last episode, um, I, like I, and I said it, he, I said he never loved Kay and he only loved Apollonia. That's the only woman he's ever loved. Even though he marries Kay and has children with her, he just uses Kay as a, you know, it's like someone to make children with, basically, which is terrible. Um, and so I think you're totally right. Apollonia is the only person he's ever made a connection with. So great point. Thanks, great, man. You, you totally proved me wrong. Great points, but hey, we're both right. Yeah. But, and then in, little, in different ways. But you're also right where Apollonia's death fueled him, obviously, wanting to get revenge. But I still think that there's always been something wrong with Michael to... Because once he has his revenge, yeah. he, once he has his revenge, he still keeps killing. He kills. He there's no reason to kill Carlo. Um, you know, he's a member of the family. There's no reason to kill his own brother. Um, and also, just the way he, the way he treats his family, like the way when the, that scene with Connie. You know, you know, and you know, Connie. You know, say what you want. She's, you know, become erratic and wild, and you know, she's marrying guys left and right, and leaving on vacations with them, and spending all of Michael's money. But Connie still knows that Connie knows that Michael killed Carlo. She knows he did. Uh, she never believed him and she's been doing all this like she says subconsciously to like to try and hurt Michael. Um I think that her only way of actually like trying to fight back against Michael and 
in a way getting retribution for herself is by hurting him by being such a bad sister. And I mean, imagine the emotion. Imagine how would you react if your if your brother killed your your spouse and you couldn't do anything about it. Nobody and there's no way anyone could ever be told about it. Um, the the person who did it could never be touched. Like she's in a crazy situation, and it takes her you know several years to finally be able to say, okay, he did it. I'm just going to come back because I need to return to the family. So Connie, you know, I think she's the most mature of all of the Corleone children. She has a very tragic story. She and she has some very heavy scenes with Michael. Um, and also she she tries to to plead with Michael's heart if he has any heart left with trying to forgive Fredo. And Connie's scenes with Michael, they show his lack of forgiveness because the way Michael speaks to Connie and he's, he seems to be like, you need to ask me for permission if you want to marry someone. You know, he's she's so con he's so controlling. And then Connie, obviously, she tries to get Michael to forgive Fredo. And he, he seems to forgive Connie, but I still don't buy it. Because obviously killing Fredo after apparently forgiving him, I think one of, one of Michael's greatest flaws is his inability to forgive. He cannot forgive anyone for anything. For any transgression, he doesn't forgive Carlo. He doesn't forgive Connie. He doesn't forgive Fredo. He doesn't forgive Kay. He has an inability to ever just turn the other cheek, to ever forgive, to have humility, and to welcome just a family member back into his arms. That's one of his greatest weaknesses is because he's so cold, he's so calculated, and he can be so cruel that it is a detriment to himself and ends up being the most destructive force, his inability to forgive. Yeah, and you could say that he doesn't completely forgive Connie, but he ends up using her as a tool. And he uses her to lure Fredo into safety and then lure Anthony out of the boat. And Fredo goes on the fishing trip with Hal alone. I agree with you, yeah. Connie, he probably, he told Connie, I'm sure... Go get my go get Anthony. Tell him we're leaving now. So she's probably has no idea that she's complicit in Fredo's murder. Yeah, hundred percent shocking. Now, the trial that happens throughout the course of the film is also very important to Michael Corleone because it could put him in prison and delegitimize his entire operation of trying to legitimize the Corleone name and family. Now, this trial came about because during the failed assassination attempt on Frank Pentagelli. First of all, Frank survived the assassination attempt, thought it was by Michael Corleone because his name was said by the assassin saying, Mike says hi, which was actually a cover by Hyman Roth to cover his traces and put the blame on Mike, which is a very, very intelligent move. But also, Mike's guy, Cheech, gets shot as well during this scene, who is there, who drove Frank there. Right, he drove the guy with the glasses. He he drove Frank there, and he also works for for Mike. He is he survived as well. So we don't see that they survive. We we assume that Cheech dies in the street by getting shot, and we we maybe assume that Frank dies of he doesn't die from the strangulation, but he like seems to fall down even after the guy stopped strangling. Maybe he died of his, his asphyxiation. We don't know. Well, for me, when I the first time I watched it, I I thought he survived. Yeah, because his eyes were open. He's it still... depends. I mean, it just depends. But it, because it, you don't see him don't again see him until the hearing. Yeah, 
We assume he's dead, but then he prop cops up because at the trial, Cheech is the first person to testify because we can assume the feds have him on a bunch of stuff. And they're like, either you talk against Corleone or you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And then they have a star witness that Mike did not foresee because Mike assumed was dead. Tom assumed was dead. Was Frank. He survived the assassination attempt. He thinks that Mike put it out on him. He's testifying about Mike against Mike in court. And so Mike has to figure out a way to stop him from testifying. And so clever, he gets his brother from Sicily, puts him on a plane, brings him to the trial, sits next to him at the trial with Tom, and translates for him. Translates some things for him. And this is Frank's brother from Sicily. And as soon as Frank sees him, this is a great scene because no dialogue is said between Frank, between Mike, between his brother, between Tom. It's just stares, just looks, just eye contact. As soon as Frank sees his brother, he knows crap. If I confess, if I if I testify against Mike, he's going to kill my entire family in Sicily. That's basically why he brought him there. It's like a bargaining chip. You don't say a word and your family stays safe. It's very old school. It's very old school uh, Sicilian stuff. What happens later on, too, where Tom... I actually interpret it in a different way. Oh, how do you interpret it? I'll tell you. Let's hear it, pal. So I interpret it as Frank, when he sees his brother, uh, um, he is unwilling to um, let go of his honor. He doesn't want to be a rat. He doesn't want to be a rat in front of his brother. I think it's a, a family Sicilian thing of honor, a code. Um and when he sees his brother, that makes him want to just forget it all and throw it all away and end up, end, up, end, up, end up ending his life. But I think that bringing his brother in was a way of showing Frank like, hey, if you do this, you're, you're a rat, you're a coward. And your family, if you do this in front of the person you respect most, that is probably something he fears. So I think that it's a matter of not wanting to rat in front of his brother. Maybe it's a little bit of all that. Yeah. And I'm sure Michael would kill his entire family back in Sicily if he ratted Almost against definitely. him. So it's, yeah. it's probably a little bit of all that, but that's a great point because what happens next is a very old school Sicilian mobster thing where Tom meets with Frank in protective custody, basically convinces him on Michael's orders that it'd probably be best if you just took your own life. You know, it's, it's an honorable thing that happened in the Roman Empire, they talk about how, you know, when a new Caesar was came about and some of the, the, the wealthy, powerful people would either kill them, they would kill themselves to, you know, like, not be part of the shame of the situation. It's also, it's relevant, that happens in other cultures. It happens in, it's in samurai code and samurai Japanese culture as well, shame. we talked about. So it's, yeah. it's, it's to, to get rid of shame, um, it's an honorable way to, to take your life to avoid that. And that's basically what happens. It's very old school stuff. It's very old school mob stuff. And it's basically showing one last act of loyalty for the Corleones. Yeah. It's a great storyline. <laughs> voice it? crack. It's a great what? Great storyline. It is a great storyline. Great storyline. <laughs> and um, I think the third act of The Godfather Part 2 is really brilliant. It's, it's I think, the, the strongest part of the movie could be the entire last... 30 minutes or so really sensational we get some of these great powerhouse scenes um the conclusions of these storylines you get um michael closing the door on k one more time it will find out in the third film that um they didn't see each other for a very long time and also it, it messed up their kids um it's a it's a terrific film do you have any more 
Yeah, I got some more. All right. What else what else you got? So I think one last thing I want to talk about is how did Michael figure out it was Hyman Roth all along? And in addition to studying Roth and being a very intelligent person, I think the scenes where Michael is in Havana with Hyman Roth and he does not have the money. Hyman Roth is very upset. And throughout the entire course of the movie, Hyman Roth is very fatherly and and you know affectionate in a lot of ways and, and very mentoring to Michael. But he gets very upset for a couple moments about the cash not being there, the two million dollars. And this kind of I think Michael is watching how he'll react. I think he purposely doesn't bring the money on time to see how Hyman Roth will react. And I think Hyman Roth's reaction was basically his final thing of realizing that it was Hyman Roth. Because he does bring the money. Fredo does bring the money eventually. So it's not like the money's not going to be there at some point. But I think that he purposely delays it so that Hyman Roth, so he can see Hyman's reaction. No, I, he, he didn't bring the money to Hyman because after seeing the rebellion, he was... He backed out of the deal because he saw how unstable Cuba was. No, but this is and the money should. And he also the, he he knew it was Hyman Roth in the first act of the film. No, I no, I I think that Michael's obviously, like I said, I think he, he knew it was Hyman halfway through the movie, but I think he needed confirmation. But no, but the reason why he didn't bring the money was because of those scenes where he saw the rebels fighting against the the military. That's why he backed out of the deal, and that's why he didn't bring the money. That's why he was unsure for a while, and then he eventually he fled Cuba. So the the instability of the region is what made him not bring the money directly to Hyman Roth in that scene. But he had it. It was in the hotel. Yeah, but it, he didn't give it to Hyman. He was unsure because the plan, everything went according to plan until Michael saw Cuba. And Fredo was already flying to Cuba while Michael was seeing firsthand what Cuba was really like during the revolution. And so then after seeing this firsthand, how unstable the region was, that's what made Michael back out of the deal and not present the money directly to Hyman because the Fredo traveling with the money was already set. All right, all right. That's what happened. That makes sense. With the money. But also there's the I, I love the scenes of his bodyguard and the bodyguard oh, yeah. the failed <laughs> the, dressed the, in all black. The failed assassination attempt yeah. on Hyman Roth when the, the soldiers walk in and just find him with a pillow on his face and shoot him up. Yeah. I would say he knew immediately it was Hyman Roth because he knew Frank would never have done it. And Hyman Roth was the person who benefited from his death. I think it was also a process of elimination. Yeah. It's like, who who would do it? Like you said, uh, I try to think how others... I try... What is it? I try to think as other people around me think. Yeah, basically. So he put himself in Hyman Roth's shoes. And if he was Hyman Roth, he'd take him out. So I think Michael, just from process of elimination, seeing who would benefit most from me dying right now, it would be Hyman Roth so he can gain control of all of the stuff. But also gathering evidence to ensure he knows the truth. Like the other scene where um, he asks about the assassination attempt on him and and then Hyman brings up his close friend, Mo Green. And he's like, yeah. I didn't ask. I didn't ask. I knew his business. I didn't ask. A great man. Mo Green. There isn't even a plaque of, his, of him. So I think that... <laughs> that's good. Even though maybe what is a business, that's maybe one of the reasons that was motivating Hyman Roth. Um, I think that covers everything I got to talk about. That was yeah, that's we, a lot. Longer than the first one. No, it's about the same time. Got some trivia. Yeah, what do you got? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a machine gun over there. <laughs> it's weird. Whenever Anthony clears his throat, I just like, in my head, I'm like, I should just hold my hands up and pretend I have a like an Uzi. <laughs> that's funny. All right. For The Godfather Part 2, Robert De Niro spent four months learning to speak the Sicilian dialect of Italian 
in order to play Vito Corleone. Nearly all of the dialogue that his character speaks in the film was in Sicilian. Also to prepare for this role, Robert De Niro lived in Sicily for three months. Five actors were nominated for Oscars in The Godfather Part Two. Robert De Niro was nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role and won that award. Also nominated for Oscars were Al Pacino, Michael V. Gazzo, Lee Strasberg, and Talia Shire. That's going to be the most ever. For a movie, five nominations for, for actors. That's insane. Marlon Brando was scheduled to return for a cameo in the flashback at the end of The Godfather Part Two. But because of the way Paramount Pictures treated him during the filming of The Godfather, he did not show up for shooting that day the scene was filmed. Francis Ford Coppola quickly rewrote the scene without Vito and filmed it that way. Talia Shire was only paid $1,500 for her role as Connie in The Godfather Part 1. However, for The Godfather Part 2, she received $30,000 plus a $10,000 bonus when the box office receipts hit $27 million. Even though James Caan appears in only one scene of The Godfather Part Two, it's in the flashback at the end of the movie, he was paid the same amount of money to play Santino in this movie as he was in The Godfather Part One. What a boss. He demanded that. He's like he had the power. He's like he was a big star. He's like I'm gonna be in, if I'm gonna be in this movie, you're gonna pay me the same amount as last. But time. he's he's the most important part of that scene. You could argue when you when you see him in that role in the flashback, you really miss him. You're like, oh man, I missed him in this one. He's so he's so uh, personable. That's it for my trivia. All right, that wraps our episode on the Godfather Part Two. Great job. This is great. It's been a great Godfather week. Yeah, and, great, you know, we might have part three coming up very real, soon. Real soon. As well as some other stuff like the Batman or something like that. We'll, we'll see what we got. Are we works. doing the Batman? Yeah, I think we might have to. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, we maybe. might have to dabble in it. It's well, a pretty we'll cool see. movie. We had a good time. We yeah. saw it twice so far. I might yeah. see it a third time. Um, but anyways, hope you enjoyed this episode on the Godfather part two. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world. This is Raiders of the Lost Podcast out. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to subscribe. If you're new, hit the like button, leave a comment. Find us on all audio streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Find us on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to check out one of these other videos right here for more content on our favorite films and breaking down all kinds of movie content. Thanks so much.